The following is my own interpretation of the works of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. It is the beginning of a work, and this is merely my opening thoughts on the moral worldviews of Narnia and Middle-earth. I intend to study and write much more on the subject, Lord willing. During the Christmas season, there are two well-known fantasy series that I like to enjoy due to their seasonal warmth. One is The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. The other is The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. Both of these classic works of literature were written around the same time by two good friends, and although they are different stylistically, they share similar themes. Although they may not have always meant it, their themes were inherently Christian. Today I'm going to take a look at the Christian themes of Narnia and Middle-earth. Welcome to the Counting Room. For me, Narnia and Middle-earth are very much part of Christmas. I could read the books and watch the movies year-round, but they are most appropriate during Christmas. Some of it has to do with the snow, which is more prominent in Narnia, but it will still cause the fellowship issues at the Redhorn Pass. In Narnia, three of the Pevensies meet Father Christmas as a harbinger of summer and Aslan's return. And let's not forget that the Fellowship of the Ring leaves Rivendell on December 25th. It may not be a good enough argument for some, but it's good enough for me and my household, so we enjoy these stories and movies during the Christmas season. Narnia and Middle-earth have become classics, and they are still relevant to our lives today. And they're still quite popular. I've often wondered why it is that we're not creating anything of this caliber and magnitude today. We're certainly ripe for it. These two worlds offer us imagination, delightful storytelling, and ultimate moral truth. Both Lewis and Tolkien spoke to the Christian faith without dressing it up in cornball, gee golly sport, virtue. Unlike the cliché surrounding much of modern contemporary Christian culture, Narnia and Middle-earth aren't empty. They're full of meaning. They remind us that there is an ultimate good and an ultimate evil, and to overcome the battle against evil, we must fight the battle within, as well as the external forces in the world. We will overcome that which is within, and we will beat the external forces of evil as well. Sometimes these two are part of the same battle. Our victory often looks like defeat taken at face value. The powers of darkness often understand the nature of the battle before we do, but our means of victory are often hidden from them. We are only small players on a much grander stage, but it is through the small, lowly, ordinary things that our victory is assured. If you read the Chronicles of Narnia keeping your Christianity at the forefront, you'll find that Lewis had worked out an entire world that exposes our world. You can even see that he was battling proto-wokeness in his time in some of his later books. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, we're given a pretty straightforward allegory complete with Christmas and Easter. 
We begin with a small event, a little girl who wanders into a wardrobe. Through the wardrobe, she discovers a new world that is under the rule of evil. Her coming to this world, even though it seems insignificant, is quite profound and changes everything. Soon, her brother Edmund enters and meets the White Witch, who tempts him and has him partake of a false communion, Turkish delight. Edmund is made sick by the food, but always desires more, and is willing to betray his siblings for more. This is much like the nature of us when we eat the delights of Satan's table. Even though it tears us apart inside, we always want more and harden our hearts. We even hurt those around us and want retribution. But like the witch, Satan is lying to us. We end up being slaves, treated poorly, and eating moldy bread. Satan is a thief of joy, and the white witch is a thief of joy. That's why it's always winter and never Christmas. I'm a big fan of snow because it represents escaping into my home and cozy associations with reading books by a cheerful fireplace. There's no such cheer in the White Witch's kingdom. Her reign is dreary, sad, wet, cold, and oppressive. At this point, the children are journeying with the beavers, and they meet Father Christmas, who gives them diverse weapons as gifts. I would like to go out on a limb and say Lewis might not have intended to make the connection of spiritual gifts being gifts of war through worship, referencing 1 Corinthians 12. This may be me putting my own ideas into the text due to my thoughts on liturgy, but hopefully it's a little helpful. When Aslan rescues Edmund, he tells the sibling not to talk about what has just passed between them, showing the nature of forgiveness. But Aslan must lay down his life to rescue the traitor. Aslan goes to his death willingly and innocently, but even though he gives no resistance, the evil party around him is afraid of him until he's dead. Then they think they've won, and it's time to take the world and slay the saints. Lewis's portrayal of Aslan laying down his life for Edmund looks like defeat. Witnessing these events through the eyes of Susan and Lucy leaves the reader in horror-stricken grief. This is invoking of the grief that we feel witnessing the suffering of Jesus going to his cross to save us and gain the victory. The death of Aslan on the stone table looks like defeat, but when Aslan rises and the stone table breaks, something new has happened. Aslan points out that the White Witch didn't understand the magic of the stone table. Evil often operates without full understanding. We see this in Satan, the White Witch, and Sauron. It's always their undoing. Now, Aslan goes about restoring life to the dead, the statues made of stone. Take a brief moment here to consider that the stones are rising to life when Aslan breathes on them, and they rise up against the witch. The very earth is reclaimed and is now at war with this great evil. Meanwhile, there's a battle going on where the witch is threatening the people of Narnia. Her dismay when Aslan takes the field is great. When Aslan takes the field, his enemies are quickly dispatched, and the battle is won. Once again, Aslan is Christ-like. This is the theme.
that if we read the rest of the series, we will see how Aslan is revealed to be a Christ figure over and over again, in very pointed and moving ways. I'm keeping the focus on the first book for now, because that is a complete story by itself, and it's very well known. We too must learn to be Christ-like, and when we learn more about the nature of Christ, things become far more complex. Christ has come. His coming and his sacrifice are central to the Christian life. And the great storytelling with which Lewis reveals all of this makes the Chronicles of Narnia timeless. But we have a mission to vanquish evil here on earth. And in order to fulfill that mission, we must be a people of sacrifice and give ourselves for the greater good. We must go from children looking adoringly on Aslan to the mature Christians taking up our own cross and following his example. We see this type of story played out in The Lord of the Rings. In Tolkien's Middle-earth, we discover a world that is very complex and full of great unimaginable evil. The story once again starts out very simple and with very small hobbits, who are a seemingly silly bunch given to the simple life which consists of no small leisure. The story begins when Frodo inherits Bilbo's ring. It is here that Frodo is given the mission where he must destroy the ring because of the great evil that seeks to regain the ring of power. Sauron. Frodo is a flawed picture of Christ. He is not mighty, and his coming catches Sauron off guard. Just like at the birth of, of Christ, when Jesus became weak, and when those who wished to stop the mission of Jesus on earth could not find him. Jesus and his true mission were hidden from Satan, and all the forces that Satan could summon could not stop the mission. Frodo moves forward and completes his mission through divine providence. Sam, who is ever loyal to Frodo, is a disciple, follower. He loves his friend and is true to his message. Even when Frodo is not Christ-like, Sam is always loyal to him. Sam, like us, doesn't fully understand the mission. He'd happily go back to the Shire with Frodo and have some peace. The full meaning of the ring is lost on him, and his greatest concern is his loyalty to Frodo. I want to take a moment here to point out that hobbits are given a reverence as having a strong moral value. That moral value is assigned to them for their resilience during their suffering, and also their silly innocence. They show that they don't understand the full magnitude of their mission when they stop for second breakfast. It's a silly thing, but it reveals who we are. We don't understand that we are in a cosmic war. We can have rest in the midst of our struggles and enjoy a hearty meal. We might look at this as a failing of the hobbits, but it's also a virtue. And that's the paradox that makes them so important. There is a time for peace and a time for war. The hobbits aren't perfect. A lot of people point to Gandalf as the Christ figure of the Lord of the Rings. And this is in a sense true. He does sacrifice himself and come back to life made new. But if we read the Silmarillion, you know that this is not a perfect analogy. Gandalf is Christ-like but he is not supposed to be Christ in the greater story. 
The role of Gandalf is pastoral, angelic. He is more of a shepherd guiding his flock. And as a shepherd, he is Christ-like and leads as Christ would while acknowledging that he is only a servant to Christ. We see this in the quote, I am a servant of the secret fire, wielder of the flame of Arnor. In the greater scheme beyond the Ring Wars, Gandalf is merely a player, not an eternal force with no beginning or end. So, my argument at this time is that Gandalf is Christ-like and that his role is that of a pastor. With all of that being said, Gandalf would be an amazing pastor, due to how Christ-like he can be. Just before the Bridge of Cassadun, he twice echoes Christ's words to Peter in the garden. Put away thy sword, Peter. How does that sound next to these passages? Do as I say, said Gandalf fiercely. Swords are of no more use here. Also, fly, this foe is beyond any of you. Then Gandalf stands between the enemy and his sheep, so that they may continue on their mission. It was not Gandalf's mission that needed to be fulfilled. Once again, showing that Gandalf can be like Christ, but is not a one-for-one -one picture of Christ. I do not believe that Tolkien has any intention of his books being allegorical but they do speak to the Christian mission as it stands today. We are called to be like Christ and persevere in Him. We have our missions in life, and sometimes they will be very difficult, and we will have to look into the darkness while clinging to the great hope that we have in Christ. In our times when it's hard to see God's intervention, we often see nothing but the darkness, but God strengthens the saints to overcome. One of the greatest insights from the Lord of the Rings is that what happens has divine providence. It was always meant to be that way, and yet the mission always hung on the edge of a knife. In Narnia, we see the picture of what Christ did, who he is, and his amazing intercession for us. In Middle Earth, we see our current state of affairs, where all may seem dark and the mission may seem doomed. But it must succeed. It will succeed. It can only succeed. I would not dare say one is better than the other. They are both very useful tools, and I'd encourage you to read them and learn what you can from them. The understanding that Lewis and Tolkien had of Christianity is amazing, and they share it with us in a powerful way. We have great hope and we can enjoy the great adventure of life that is laid out before us. God has a mission for us, and we must steadily work towards that end. We need both Narnia and Middle-earth, because, while we move the ring closer to Mount Doom, with every step, the proverb on our hearts sings out, Aslan is on the move. I thank you for indulging me, and I wish you all a Merry Christmas. Now let's get to our weekly book review. Christianity and Wokeness by Owen Strachan. I hope I'm saying his name right. It was a little over a year ago when I read the book 
Christianity and Wokeness by Owen Strachan. And I didn't know much about the author, so I approached with caution. I found the book to be eye-opening and helpful. The author discusses how Christianity is infiltrated by a new ideology, and he describes how this ideology is toxic and has no place in the Christian church. What attracted me to this book was the subject of wokeness and how it seems to have infiltrated many of my friend groups. Some of the people buying into this ideology seem well-meaning, but they don't seem to have some of the tools to make the arguments necessary to combat woke victim theology. This book will give them the arguments and the tools necessary to fight wokeness with a thoroughly Christian worldview. In my words, Wokeness is a thought process that is built on the foundation of Darwinian social theory and Marxism. It is often presented with the attitude that everything that came before, specifically from Western culture, is bad, and this current generation has it all figured out. In my opinion, part of this arrogance might be enhanced by our open access to amazing technology without having the tools to use them. If you say something reasonable and the argument is presented with the attitude that it's unbelievable that you don't accept the opposite thought which just rang up 10 minutes ago, then you're confronting wokeness. Now, back to the book. Hohenstracken's focus is on intersectionality and more specifically, race. This is understandable because this is the largest focus of the blue-haired army, but I was hoping for some more information on the history behind the transgender movement and how things that no one accepted 10 years ago have become the latest fad. If you're looking for that type of discussion, you'll have to search beyond this book. Strachan's argument is that there cannot be racism in the kingdom of God because division of people does not have a place in the created order. He points out that wokeness only stands on division and perpetuates it. Strachan goes into detail about how wokeness got into the church through the desire for social justice. He discusses how social justice ideas of our time are quite different than they were in the 1960s and how it's in conflict with the gospel message. It pollutes our observation of United States history and current affairs because we have made wokeness the lens through which we look. Owen Strachan has done a great work here and I would tell any Christian who has questions about woke ideology to start here. The book is not difficult to read and Strachan's arguments are clear and concise. He leans on the word of God as his foundation for his arguments, and he exposes how intersectionality is an idol in and of itself that many Christians have put before what scripture says. Check out this book. It's a great read and easy to understand. It doesn't delve into deep mystical theologies, but instead it relies on basic biblical truth to make an argument that after reading this book, Will seem obvious. My biggest takeaway from this book is that we must apply theology to wokeness instead of applying wokeness to theology. If we apply Christianity to wokeness properly, we will find that wokeness is of no use to us. I have not read any of Owen Strachan's other works, but I think I might in the future. He has an excellent grasp of the gospel and has solid arguments against the foolishness of the world. I'm Joel Edgar. Thanks for joining. God bless.